The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. My name is Tyler. I never really grew up with a strong faith. I believe that something created humanity and I chose to call that being God. But I always had more questions than an actual relationship and understanding. Throughout middle school and high school, I was always that dark kid. I listened to a lot of metal music, loved horror movies. So naturally, I tried to find those who shared that same interest. I found that. With that, I also found drugs, alcohol, sex, atheism, and more questions. Drugs and alcohol were never really my thing, but I became wise for my new friends. I got good at giving advice in life, love, and relationships in the way that the world constantly feeds us. I would often use that knowledge to take advantage of girls. At this point, I was also embracing atheism never really caring about an external judgment, doubting if there was even a God at all. At this point, I was truly lost at life. There's this um, chapter in the Bible. It's Hebrews chapter 11. And it's commonly known in the church world as the Hall of Faith. It lists the names and the stories of great men and women in the Bible who did awesome things for God because of their faith. And even if you're not familiar with church, you know some of these names, names like Abraham and Noah. Everybody knows Noah. Every zoo and every nursery around the country, around the world knows who Noah is. And Moses. And I'm guessing that if you would have asked Tyler at that time in his life, or any of us for that matter in a similar time, if we'd be a candidate for something like a hall of faith, we'd probably say that we all got a better chance of being in the Hall of Fame. Baseball, football, rock and roll, you name it. Why? Because this thing of faith. And the Bible describes faith as the substance of our hope. It's the evidence of things that we can't see. And when you think about faith, it is a whole lot easier to talk it out than it is to walk it out. We've been taking a look at the book of Judges throughout this series, Unlikely. And we've been seeing how God has chosen unlikely people to rise up and lead and accomplish and do amazing things. And when we think about our faith, God's not even looking for like something epic. He's just looking for our faith in our everyday struggle. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Ehud. I love that name. He, he sounds like a rap artist. Like, Ehud. You know what I'm okay, okay. Anyway, he had a physical weakness. And God used that physical weakness to pull off this Mortal Kombat fatality. Get in my belly. Like with on the king and he led the army to a victory. And then last week, we took a look at Deborah. And Deborah had a a cultural or social weakness, because in that time, being a woman, we know that ain't the same now, but in that time, being a woman, it was very unlikely that she would rise to lead, but that's exactly what God did through her life. And then that brings us to now, brings us to Judges chapter six. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute that you're a store owner. You could pick your store, shoe store, ladies, deli shop, guys, Starbucks, millennials, whatever, whatever you want. But imagine you own a store 
and you find yourself one day smack in the middle of a riot. Your window's smashed, the building's burning, people are coming in, taking things off the shelf. You try and stop them and they threaten you, threaten your family, all you can do is run for your life. This is the scene when we come in at the beginning of Judges chapter six. Israel's left God, they peaced out on him, and because of that, they've removed themselves from his care and his provision, and the Midianites were this riot. The Bible says they were like locusts. There was too many of them to count. They were coming into their land whenever they wanted, stealing their food, taking their animals, trampling, abusing them, leaving nothing but ruin in their path. So Israel cries out to God, please help us. First thing he does is he sends a prophet to him to tell him, I need you to know this is your fault. And he reminds him of that. You remember, you removed yourself from my worship and from my care. And the scene goes black. And when the camera comes up, we find Gideon. Gideon is someone who made it to that hall of faith. But if you see the beginning of his story, you would think that it's unlikely that he would end up there. He didn't have a physical weakness like Ehud. He didn't have something social or cultural going on like Deborah. His weakness was more like, like Tyler's. His weakness was more like your and mine. His weakness was internal. Let's take a look. Judges chapter 6, verse 11. And Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero. Somebody go like this. No? Okay. He says, mighty hero. And Gideon's like, you talking to me? Sir, uh, he replied, uh, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where's all the miracles that our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say that the Lord brought us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. You guys, listen. We're going to talk about tough stuff today. And I'm letting you know right now, we're about to go from zero to 100 with this thing. So look at somebody you love and tell them, buckle up. And we find Gideon. It says he's threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press. A wine press, can anybody guess what a wine press is for? It's for grapes. But he's threshing wheat in it. When you thresh wheat, you took a mallet and you laid in all the wheat. First of all, you had a lot of it. And he has little enough that he can use a wine press, a sign of his weakness, that his enemies there robbing of his life. And when you thresh wheat back in the day, first of all, you would do it out at the edge of the village. And you had a hard ground, rock or wood surface. Sometimes even had like spikes or things coming up from the wood so to help tear the wheat apart from the stem or from the shaft. And you wanted to do it out in the open because you wanted the wind to come through and help you clear this out. But he's doing it in a wine press because he's hiding. Because he has an enemy who has totally changed his life. In other words, he's, he's eating his lunch in the bathroom because of who sits at his lunch table. 
He's resigning from a job that he loves because his boss belittles him. He's, he's sleeping on the couch because there's a conversation that he needs to have with his wife, but he won't. So if I were to ask you today, where are you hiding and who are you hiding from? And before you pick a place and you pick a face, don't. Because our hiding places aren't locations. Our hiding places aren't geography, they're biography. Our hiding places are our opinions and our attitudes, our defensiveness, our resentment, our philosophies. And there are a long list of reasons and excuses that keep us from stepping out in faith from trusting God or anybody else. And if you're picturing someone as an enemy, don't. Because if not them, just somebody else tomorrow. Our enemy that we're hiding from is the fear that we have for them. Or it. Fear is our enemy. And like Gideon finds out, from the Midianites coming in and taking whatever they wanted. Fear comes into our life. It'll trample over our dreams. It will steal our confidence. It will crush our goals. It'll lie to our mirror image. Fear will keep you from doing what you're supposed to do, going where you're supposed to go, and most importantly, being who you are supposed to be. And what Gideon finds out and what we need to write down, on a napkin, in your phone, on your hand to cheat on the test, it doesn't matter, is that our only weapon against fear is to live by faith. See, God wants to sit down next to us and invite us into a life of faith with him. But maybe your hiding place is the same question that Gideon fires right back at God. Verse 13 says, Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened? Where are all the miracles that our ancestors taught us about. I grew up here and my grandmama said, God is good all the time and all the time. He is and he comes through and won't he do it? I heard all of that growing up, Gideon said. And maybe this question is your hiding place or maybe it's a hiding place that you came across when you tried to share Christ with somebody. It's the question that won't leave this planet as long as we're on it. It's the question that says, if there is an all-powerful, perfect, all-controlling, all-creating might. And he's not just some force. He's a father who loves that the winds and the waves obey his very words. If he's there and he exists, why hasn't he said anything to these hurricanes? Why do we even need a children's hospital where kids have to spend their childhood with IVs and tubes hooked up to them? 
When Israel cries out to God, the first thing he reminds them is, listen, you removed yourself from my care. God prevented everything that we deal with now by giving us one rule that we could not keep. And when we couldn't keep it and we broke it, we brought into the world what the Bible calls sin. It's a spiritual poison that affected everything that we know from our relationship to God, our relationship with one another, even our relationship with our dog, believe it or not, even our relationship with the dirt that we plant in. So that's it, Spence. I'm supposed to believe in God because all this that happens in our planet is our fault. Come on, that's the best you got. That doesn't make me want to believe in God one bit. Come on, you, you guys always brag in your songs and on the stage about how he's forgiven and he's merciful. You're telling me there ain't nothing that he can do about the mess we live in? Yes. There is, and he did. Let's, let's just say for a minute, let's just say for a minute that God decides to clear out all the hospitals, miraculous healing, Let's say he decides from this point on that he's going to block every drunk or texting driver of teenagers from crashing into somebody innocent. He's going to settle every earthquake. He's going to remove an AK-47 from every terrorist. He's going to stop every hurricane before one drop of rain hits one grain of sand. Well, then, then we could all agree, right? There must be a loving, all-powerful God because he's fixed everything on our little planet Earth. But what God knew is that even if he did all that, he would just be delaying the inevitable. If we see it that way, we are blinded to the devastatingly obvious and it's the one thing that all of us right now can agree on. Atheists and believers alike, agnostics and doubters, all world religions, there's not one person on the earth that won't agree to this. And it's that if God would do all that, eventually we all still die. There's still a moment where we all still pass away. When there's an emergency room situation and somebody comes into the emergency room and they have multiple life-threatening injuries. They don't just do a paper, rock, scissors to decide what they're going to fix first. They find the bleeding and they stop it. Why? It's obvious because our blood is our lifeline. If it goes, we go. God looked down. He saw us on the emergency room table and he saw our lifeline was cut off. So he went straight for the most vital he didn't ignore the situation that we were in. He didn't ignore the storms and the life that we were going to go through. As a matter of fact, he stepped right to it. He stepped right to it and he placed his son Jesus right in the middle of the storm. That's why the eye of the storm is the calm of the storm because Jesus stepped right into the middle of the perfect storm, the storm of sin, death, and hell. And he allowed it to be heaped all on himself, taken to the cross, and taken to the grave so that anybody that would believe in him when he rose would know that whether you die from old age, from sickness, from an accident, or from the floodwaters of a hurricane, that it will be the only death you ever have to face, and that death will take you straight to your lifeline, which is God. God did do something about us. He did do something about our, our, our demise 
He just loved us enough not to put a Band-Aid where we were hemorrhaging. He knew we needed surgery. So Jesus allowed himself to be laid on the operating table of the cross to give us a transplant of his forgiveness and his relationship with his Father to us. Living by faith is not trying to prove or disprove God by his miracles. It's getting in line to be his miracle when he calls you. And that's why whenever we have something like a hurricane, God hasn't ignored what we're dealing with. He fixed the most vital. He cares the most about eternity, but he cares what we're going through now. And that's why before one flood wave will touch the ground, God says, flood waves of prayers for my people are going to hit my heart, and I'm going to step to that storm, and I'm going to send my own waves, waves of people, waves of volunteers, waves of donation, waves of money, waves of compassion and love. I'm in the storm with you, and you're not alone. That's our God. He cared enough not to just give us a Band-Aid. And if you think that this is coming from a place of insensitivity or a lack of empathy to disasters and things happening, my wife and her family here, they have family over in Puerto Rico that they still haven't even heard from. There's a blackout over there and we're in the dark over here because we don't know. All we know is a hurricane Maria came through and did her thing. If you think it's coming from a place of someone who hasn't had to ask for the tough prayers, I've prayed the prayers of healing. I've asked God to do the miracles that I know he can do. One of them was for my own father. In my dad's later years, he, he suffered from a severe case of dementia to the point where he couldn't even have a conversation with you. You couldn't speak. My mother, God bless her, took care of everything. His feeding, his clothing, his changing, his bathing. What kind of life is that, God? So we prayed for healing, but we prayed in faith, not fear. When you pray in fear, you say, God, give me what or else. Give me, give me what I want or else I'm not going to believe in you. When you pray in faith, you say, God, I know you can. But if you don't, I trust you. And I'll see people in the grocery store and they'll say, Spence, I'm so sorry about your dad. And I can't wait to look him in the eye and reply to him and say, I'm not. Spence, what you talking about? Your dad died. No. No, we prayed for healing and we trusted God. And on the day that my dad died, he was healed. Because I know that now his mind is better than it was before. He can talk again and he can talk to God. He's not a resident in a home. He's a resident in the kingdom of heaven. Living by faith is the difference between blaming God and claiming God. Take a breath. I told you we were going for the big giants first. Take a deep breath. Stay with me. Israel's in a crisis of life or death. And God comes again and he says, I'm looking for somebody's story to raise up out of this, to get my people out of this. And I want you and you and you. And I can't point to everybody, but he said it to you. Look what he says. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I'm sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? 
My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my entire family. He's saying not only is my team 11 and 0, I'm 150 pounds. What am I going to do with Dwayne Johnson? Thumb wrestle? The Lord said to him, I will be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting one man. He's trying to assure him a victory. He's saying it's going to be a first-round KO. It's going to be a nuke. Like, like Gideon, God, he wants to call us into a life of faith. First in his son Jesus, and then he wants us to live by faith. But if we're going to live by faith, we have to come face to faith. That's not a lisp. Face to faith with who God sees. God comes to Gideon and he says, mighty warrior. And he can't believe it because he knows at that moment he's hiding like a coward. And somebody's came to you before. They've came to you and they've called you a leader. They've called you talented. They've called you gifted. They've called you a mighty warrior. And you won't see it because instead you'd rather see a failed marriage. You'd rather see an SAT score. You'd rather see a GED rather than a bachelor degree. You look in the mirror and you see a cashier. God sees the smile and the joy that could be the difference between somebody committing suicide or not. You look in the mirror and you see a teacher God sees a future raiser and a leader builder. You look in the mirror and you see a nurse. God sees his healing. You look in the mirror and you see a sanitation worker. God sees the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, a servant. And when we put our faith in God, we'll start to see what he sees. God does not see our weaknesses. He only sees his power. Gideon replies in verse 17. He's trying to, to grab a hold of this thing. And he says, if you are truly going to help me, then show me a sign. Prove that the Lord is really speaking to me. I don't even really, he's like, I don't even really know if there's a God. He says, don't go away until I come back. He goes back to his home and he prepares this little meal, some bread and some broth and some meat, and he brings it back. In verse 21, it says he, he laid it down on the stone in front of him. And it says, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread with the tip of the staff in his hand. And fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all he brought. And then the Lord disappeared. Gideon was trying to believe at that moment. When we start to step into faith for the first time or continually trying to grow in our faith in God, we're looking at God with faith eyes and there's always gonna be something that gets in our faith vision. It's something that both our enemy fear and faith want to grab a hold of. And it's a seven-foot-long steel bar called doubt. And on this bar of doubt, 
we recognize that we either still doubt that there is a God first and foremost, or we've put our faith in God, but we still have doubts from time to time or daily that he's big enough and strong enough and loving enough to want to do what's best in our life. And when that doubt starts to block our vision, we start to pick up these plates of weights of questions. And we lay them on the bar. God, why? God, how? God, when? Please, when? Single people, God, who? And with that bar of doubt weighing down with all those questions, if we let our weakness and our enemy fear grab a hold of that, with it being our weakness, sure enough, it's going to come back down. And all that doubt and all that weight of questions is going to crush our life. But if you grab it with faith, if you grab that bar of doubt with the weight of questions with faith, 1 Peter 5, 7 says that we are allowed and that we can and that we should lift up all of our cares and all of our anxieties and all of our questions to God. And as you take that bar of doubt and you take those weight of questions and you begin to lift them up to God, as many times as it takes, and every now and then more weights of questions are going to get on the bar, and you lift it to him again, and you lift it to him in prayer, and you lift it to him to his word, and you lift it to him by guiding by his spirit, something starts to happen to your faith. It gets stronger. So that by the time the toughest questions come along, like, God, why my child? God, why my dad? God, why my country? God, how? You will have a faith that says, God, I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know when. But I know you. That's faith. That's living by faith. You have to work out your doubt. Philippians 2.12 says that we have to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. If you question God, you're in the right place. If you're afraid you're making the right move, you're in the right place. If you're still not sure, you're in the right place. Gideon wasn't wrong. He wasn't running away from his doubt. He was running to it to take it back to God. That's what he was doing when he went and got the food and he got the meat and he sat it down on the rock and God said, ooh, watch me, hibachi, and he, and he proved to himself that he's God. Y'all hungry? <laughs> Verse 22, Gideon realized at that moment that he was, he was the angel of the Lord and he cried out, oh, sovereign Lord, I am doomed. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Verse 23, God says, it's all right. The Lord replied, don't be afraid. You will not die. Here, online, somebody today, you know God has came and sat down right beside you. 
And you can sense him inviting you into a life of faith, either into Jesus for the first time or to take those steps in your life that you know are going to take all the faith in the world. But in those moments when you realize you're close to God, you look at yourself like Gideon did and you, you see shame. And you see guilt. Gideon knew that he didn't live a life of faith. He even lived a life worshiping other gods. And he was terrified. And he saw God as his judge. And what did God say to him? Don't be afraid. It's all right. I'm not here to be your judge today. I'm here to be your father. I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here to deploy you. Do you think God would say the same thing to you? Do you think he would say the same thing to me? Why don't we see what he said to Tyler when, when Tyler was in this moment? I was just coming out of a bad relationship when I met a girl who would eventually introduce me to Lifehouse. Not really being much of a church person, I mostly agreed just to go to hang out with her. Even though I attended, I was never really engaged. The only reason I stuck around was to be with her and to watch, at the time, our worship pastor, Corey Broadwater, play music. I didn't really care about the rest of the teachings. I was still stuck in the same old addictions and dark ways of life. I didn't really connect with this purpose that Patrick was speaking about. And at the end of the day, I was always left with more questions than answers. It wasn't until about nine months in that I had my first-hand encounter with God. I was at this youth event now known as YouthCon. And I was told that this event was more like a concert than an actual church service, which was the only reason why I agreed to go. Now, while at YouthCon, for the first time, I started to feel like the way I was aimlessly going about life was all wrong. Slowly, all that shame, guilt, brokenness that I'd kept out for so long was starting to creep into my heart. With tears running down my face, I finally fell to my knees and started begging to a God who I never really cared about before. It was then that a youth pastor's group that I wasn't even with came over and started praying over me. They told me if I wanted all of the shame, brokenness, and guilt gone, I needed to submit and ask Jesus to enter my life. And only then I would understand my purpose and I could be free. And that was the first time that I asked Jesus Christ to enter my life. Throughout the next few years, that youth pastor became a mentor of mine. And he would lead me to a life focused on Jesus that I never cared about before. Since getting to know God, my faith has grown in Him, and so is a desire to learn more about Jesus. The doubt that I was once stricken with has since been replaced with peace and understanding. I've since found my own personal calling in both tech and youth ministries, and I'm able to use that to worship and bring glory to His name. I now have the desire to mentor students who share the same doubts and struggles I once had, and lead them to a life of better understanding and purpose. For the first time in my life, I can say that I'm no longer lost, and I now have a better understanding of my purpose. So proud of Tyler. I knew him at that time that he mentioned in his life, I had no idea. Gideon decides to put his faith into God. He says, I had, just like he had a moment, just like Tyler said, this is it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to say yes. I know he's real. And I want to believe. And when he does that, God sends him on his first assignment. I'm going to show you one more verse. Verse 25. God tells him, 
Go back to your father's house. He says, pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar. Listen to this. Using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. Sorry, I did all my homework, so you guys don't know why I'm giddy about this. Giddy, Gideon. This altar and this Asherah pole, these were symbols to false and powerless gods that Israel had decided to put their faith in. And maybe today you would say you're not guilty of doing that, and I'm not going to ask, but listen, in the same way, if fear and our weaknesses and doubts and questions have kept us from doing one of these, then we've made them a God. We've given them the power over our life that only God should have. And the first thing that God told Gideon to do when he put his faith in him, he says, go back and tear that mess down. And not only that, just like he told him, he said, it's all right. He took the very thing that gripped his life and told him to use that as the fuel to serve me. Tyler was doubting everything. He was lost in his mind. He had no idea if there was a God or not. And now he seeks those exact kids out. One Tyler's now going to multiply into 10 and 20 and 100 because he put his faith in God and God said, go back to the God you were worshiping and tear that down and it's going to become the fuel of your faith. You probably never thought of yourself as worshiping another God. But when we gave those fears and that lack of faith and questions the place of God, we made it the exact same thing. We made it a God. My favorite question of the entire service, whether I'm saying envelope at the announcements or I get to preach the word, is to ask this one question. Is your faith in Jesus today? And if you're not sure, if you don't know, if you're online and you think you're not connected because you're not here, you might not be here, but guess who's there? He's right beside you, and he's inviting you into a life of faith. And all you got to do is say yes to Jesus. You're saying yes to believing he's the son of God, that he came here simply because we had a lifeline connected by sin, and he wanted to restore us. And when he went to the cross, he took all of our sin and death with him, and he rose again by God's power. He will return for us. When we die now, we will go straight to him. And if you believe that... If you're here, if you're online, no matter where you are and you want that today, all I want you to do right now is just say yes. 
You can whisper it. If you're in your, your home, you can shout it. You can shout it here. Just say yes. And if you say yes today, don't leave today without telling one of us you said yes. You can mark a checkbox in your envelope. This is a major decision to follow Jesus. You can come over to this Raised to Life banner, and we want to have a conversation with you. You can drop any of that information in a box. We just want you to tell us because we want to celebrate with you the way heaven is celebrating you right now. And if you do make the decision for Jesus and you're able to get here, you need to run home like Gideon, tell your family you did it, bring them here tomorrow night, and get baptized in front of all of them. Are you ready for this life of faith? to live by it, to work out the doubt, to face your faith. What we want to do right now with everyone, because we're all going to need a time to come face to faith with who God sees, is we want to give you a time of that reflection, and we want to do it in a moment that we call communion. Our hospitality team is going to come around with it. They're going to give it to you. This is the symbol of what Jesus did for us. Coming to the, to the cross, his body broken, his blood poured out. And, and Jesus encouraged his followers to do this, to remember the sacrifice. But the Bible tells us that before we do this, we need to have a time of examination. So I want to give you a specific assignment for your examination right now. We're about to sing a song that says, come to the altar. Remember the altar that was built to Baal, that Gideon tore down, and God said, build me one. Worship me. Put your faith in me. Right now, when you take a moment before we have communion together, I think what God wants us to do is go back to those altars. You're going to have to be honest. You're going to have to be honest with yourself. You're going to have to be honest with God. He already knows. But you need to go find those altars, the ones of our fears and the ones we committed our weaknesses to and our doubts and our questions. Ask God to show you them. And then I'll return and we'll take communion together. Go find those altars. Thank you for listening to audio from LifeHouse Church located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.